In today's episode, I'm joined by Patrick McCohen. Patrick McCohen has written a brilliant book called The Oxygen Advantage. I must confess that before reading it, I was very skeptical about how important uh, our breathing could be and whether really it had a place to fit into the Fat and Furious podcast. I am now a complete convert. I think you're going to find today's episode absolutely fascinating. I recently interviewed uh, John Burgess, a wellness expert from the West Midlands, uh, from Leamington Spa. And during that interview, he said, Steve, one of the problems with your book and all your podcasts, you don't cover enough on breathing. And I went, well, that's mainly because our thing is about you know, primal and getting back to our ancestors. And surely breathing hasn't changed uh, over the generations. And John said, well, I think it has. I think you should read a book called The Oxygen Advantage. So I bought the book, started to read it, and my gosh, how we've changed our breathing over the generations is way beyond what I imagined. Uh, and I've got a hold of the author, Patrick McCann. Uh, Patrick, uh, thank you for joining us. Fascinating book. Um, really enjoyed reading it. Um, tell everybody your story. My story started off as a, as a young child with, with asthma. And I was first diagnosed probably about four or five years of age. And if you have asthma, you have a problem with your lungs. It's not just isolated to your lungs. I also had a problem with my nose. My nose was stuffy all the time, which results in chronic mouth breathing. And if you have a stuffy nose, you are 1.8 times more likely to have a sleep problem. So as a kid growing up, as a teenager growing up, and even into my 20s, you know, at university, I was wheezing, caught for breath, um, but I was also in a stress mode because of fast, hard breathing through the mouth, activating the upper chest, putting the body, the body into a fight or flight, and my sleep was dreadfully impacted. So I was tired, and so you're supposed to concentrate, you're supposed to be able to attain grades, you're supposed to be able to have focus, you're supposed to be able to have energy levels. And yet nobody ever told me to breathe through your nose and to slow down your breathing. And that was despite going to medical doctors for at least 16 or 17 years with a couple of hospitalizations. All that time, I had dysfunctional breathing patterns and nobody picked up on it. I read a newspaper article, the Irish Independent or the Irish Times. I can't remember which one it was. It spoke about the work of a Russian doctor. Part of his work was during the Soviet space race. He was commissioned to try and determine what was the ideal composition of gases in terms of um, for, for spaceships. And that was his research. But also as a medical doctor, he noticed a connection between people who are sick and their breathing. And he said that as people get sicker, they start to breathe faster, they start to breathe more upper chest, and they have more noticeable breathing. And he asked the question, was it their sickness that was causing their fast and exaggerated breathing pattern? Or was it their fast and exaggerated breathing, which was feeding back into their sickness? So he started getting his patients to slow down their breathing, breathe through the nose, breathe light. And uh, he noticed that many of them made quite significant improvements in their state of health. And that's what I did. I switched after reading that newspaper article. I switched to nose breathing. I did the nose unblocking exercise that was around at the time. It was available on the internet back in the early, the late 1990s. I was able to open up my nose. That night, I wore Breathe Right strips across my nose and I taped my mouth shut. 
And I woke up the first morning, not too bad, a little bit getting used to it. The second morning, it was the best night's sleep that I'd ever remember having in 20 years. And not only that, my asthma symptoms reduced by 50% in one week by making this change. Now, I was still in the corporate world. My degree is in economics. I went to a university in Dublin called Trinity College in Dublin. I was committed to staying in that corporate world, even though I absolutely hated it. But it was about two to three years later that I was on a drive and I just had a gut feeling I want to teach breathing. So I contacted the Russian embassy. They put me in touch with the people in Moscow. And that was the end of that. So I've been, I've been teaching this now since 2002, full time. Yeah, look, it's, it's all fascinating. I want to, for everybody that's watching, whether it be on uh, YouTube or listening on, on, on the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, let's start with the fundamental princ- uh, principle of how we should breathe. Because, uh, you know, if you ask me, even two weeks ago before I bought your book, and I've been in this space for about four years, how you should breathe, I'd say, well, you breathe through your mouth, you breathe through your nose, uh, and it doesn't really matter which one it is, as long as you're not you know, going crazy with it, as long as you're get, get, getting enough oxygen, it doesn't really matter. But having read your book, I totally get it now that you know, that's for eating and talking, and that's what we should be using for breathing. Uh, and when I first read in your book about taping your mouth, I thought, what a load of nonsense, but I've recommended a few people, they've tried it, and it's like, it really, really works. So just go basic 101. Why is that for talking and eating? And why is that for breathing? Your mouth has absolutely zero function when it comes to breathing. None. If you look at the nasal cavity, and I'm showing an anatomical model, so those listening aren't able to see it, but those on, on YouTube should be able to see it. Here, if we take, if we take breath in through the mouth here, you see that that air can travel directly into the airways and there's absolutely no function performed by the mouth in terms of filtration, humidification, harnessing a gas called nasal nitric oxide. And it's not just about, you know, the nose has been a filtration. Everybody knows that. But your nose is also connected to the lower regions of your lungs. When you breathe through your nose, you tend to bring the air deeper into the lungs. And it's not about big breathing, but it's about harnessing the lower regions of the lungs with lateral expansion and contraction of the diaphragm. The reason that it's good not to breathe using the upper chest is because the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower regions of the lungs. So when you breathe through your nose, you take the air down into the lower regions of the lungs, but also as you breathe through your nose, you carry a gas called nitric oxide from the nose, from the nasal cavity, down your throat, into your lungs. And nitric oxide redistributes the blood throughout the lungs. In short, nasal breathing increases oxygen uptake, the pressure of oxygen in the blood by 10% versus mouth breathing. Now, that's only one reason. Another reason may be in terms of protecting the airways. You have so many people who have exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. Um, In the athlete population, it can be 20 to 50% of the population. Nasal breathing helps to prevent that. Mouth breathing does nothing to help prevent it. Sleep. As I said about when I was a kid growing up, with my mouth open, breathing hard through my mouth, I was having sleep apnea. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I was told that I would be snoring like hell, and then I would suddenly stop breathing, and people thought I was going to die. So this is a very common complaint, and especially as we get older, 
You know, so for sleep apnea, for concentration, for asthma, for oxygen uptake, but not only that, but also for oxygen delivery, because there's a belief out there, Stephen, that the more air you breathe, the more oxygen gets delivered to the tissues. And it's total nonsense. Like when people are stressed, they're, they're told to take a big breath or a deep breath. Like that's no good because if you breathe harder than what you need, number one is it's not going to increase the saturation of your blood with oxygen. And number two, you get rid of a gas called carbon dioxide. You get rid of too much of this gas. And carbon dioxide is not just a waste gas. In order for oxygen to be released from the blood to the tissues, to the organs, you need carbon dioxide. So by breathing hard, you lose too much carbon dioxide. And as a result, your blood vessels constrict. And also, the bond between the red blood cells and oxygen strengthens that oxygen doesn't get delivered to where it needs to go. And you think of, not this is not just about during rest. The guy or the gal who goes into a gym, they're in there with their mouth wide open. They're breathing hard. They are panting. They think it's great. They're breathing fast upper chest. Total uneconomical, totally inefficient, totally wasting energy, not helping functional breathing, not helping functional movement, because without functional breathing, you don't have functional movement. And if you don't have functional movement, you're at a greater risk of injury. And even at this short thing, lower back pain, there's a huge percentage of individuals with lower back pain. They have dysfunctional breathing patterns because breathing is not just for respiration, but the diaphragm which is located at the base of the, of the thorax of the chest, that's also responsible for stabilization of the spine. If you have lower back pain, breathe through your nose, breathe low, but also breathe light. Okay, look, there's about, <laughs> there's about 30 things I want to pick up in, the, in that one minute that you've just done. Uh, let's, let's break it, let's, break it, let's chunk it all the way down uh, and really go simple. Let's pick up on straight away the carbon dioxide thing because... Uh, speak to nine out of 10 adults, they'll say, or even teenagers, um, they'll say, well, carbon dioxide is a bad thing because that causes global warming. So uh, the association with carbon dioxide is a bad thing and, uh, and people think it's bad to breathe it. But what you're saying in the book is the body needs a certain amount of carbon dioxide, aren't you? And you're saying that if we breathe out too much, we breathe out too much of it and we need it to unload the oxygen from the hemoglobin that, that pushes the oxygen. In fact, even I'm going too technical. Yeah, now. yeah, so, perfect. So, so basically what you're saying is we have this thing called hemoglobin. That's what puts oxygen around the body, gets it to the organs, gets it to the tissue. And we actually need a certain amount of carbon dioxide to unload it. So if we're breathing out too hard, um, we are getting rid of too much carbon dioxide, and therefore we can't get the oxygen to the parts of the body that are crying out for it. Have I, have I read that right or am I missing no, it? No, that's correct. Um, and this was discovered back in 1904 by a Danish physiologist called Christian Bohr. And it's called the Bohr effect, B-O-H-R. This would be, you know, accounted for in any medical textbook about respiratory physiology. So basically, as carbon dioxide increases, blood pH drops, and the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen reduces. In other words, the red blood cells release oxygen to the tissues and organs in the presence of carbon dioxide. Now, it's not just that, because also our blood vessels are also influenced by carbon dioxide in the blood. And it's our breathing, of course, that determines carbon dioxide pressure in the lungs, which in turn is determining carbon dioxide pressure in the blood. It's very common for people with dysfunctional breathing to have cold hands, cold feet, and brain fog. 
And I think most people will realize that if they take five or six big, deep breaths in and out through either the nose or the mouth, that they will feel lightheaded. That's not a sign of more oxygen getting to the brain. That's a sign of less. So the harder we breathe in our everyday life, the more our blood vessels constrict and the less oxygen that's delivered throughout the body. So we've kind of got it wrong, haven't we? As far as I can see, for such a long time, you think you need more more oxygen going in. So whew, you breathe really heavy, like you say, whether it be through the nose or the mouth, because that's where you get more oxygen in. But I think what you're saying is um, because we're then breathing out more carbon dioxide, because we need that carbon dioxide to offload the oxygen to our tissues uh, from the hemoglobin, that actually by breathing harder, there's less oxygen in the body. Is that what we're saying? Less oxygen is delivered, correct. And from reading your book, uh, hemoglobin and oxygen levels in the body are always at sort of 95 to 99% anyway. So you can't really get much more in if you've already got 95 to 99%. But I guess by overbreathing, you can reduce your carbon dioxide. And, and therefore, although you've got a lot of oxygen in the body, it's not getting to the parts it needs to get to. Have I got, sort of got that right? Yes. In terms of 98% of oxygen is carried bound by hemoglobin. And when we breathe hard, we might increase it by 1% or 2 percentage points. It's insignificant. When we do breathe hard, we can increase the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma, but there's only a small amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma anyway. And the problem with breathing hard is that it's causing a loss of carbon dioxide and it can happen very, very quickly. Um, and I suppose the, the way to think of this is, how do sick people breathe? You know, they typically breathe open mouth breathing, chest breathing, fast breathing, noticeable breathing. And how would an elite athlete breathe? You won't detect their breathing during rest. If they go and do physical exercise, their breathing is relatively light for the intensity and duration of physical exercise. They don't gas out too soon. Individuals with poor breathing patterns. It causes exercise intolerance. And, you know, our ancestors, if you look at throughout the evolution of the human species, Neanderthals, and two, two years ago, researchers identified Neanderthals. And, you know, in terms of they identified that their nose, their nasal passages were quite large. And the researchers said that this was because they weren't just breathing through their nose during rest and sleep but they were also breathing through their nose during physical exercise. And our, our ancestors had wonderful, wonderfully developed faces and jaws and airway, and that's all screwed up now. That the face of modern man, the jaws are set back, the airways are compromised, the nostrils are pinched, the palate is high, and teeth are overcrowded. Like, we're getting this wrong on so many levels. You know, why do we have so much crooked teeth? If you go down to a local history museum, if you look at a skull, you will see well-developed arches and you will see that all teeth are present and very unlikely to have overcrowding of teeth. The reason that we have overcrowding of teeth is because the mouth is too small for our current teeth. Our jaws are affected. Our airway is compromised. And orthodontists will sometimes say that the person has inherited dad's big teeth and mom's small jaw. Come on. You know, we really have to identify the problem is not that the teeth are too big. The problem is that the jaw is too small. The human face is shrinking and that's not good. 
And, and are you putting that down? And by the way, I find it fascinating there because one of the people that I absolutely think was one of the great sort of doctors and scientists and explorers uh, was Weston Price in the 1930s, that dentist that went around the world uh, studying the, the Eskimos and uh, the, the Aborigines and looking at why uh, so much dental work was needed in, in, in sort of the modern world. And, uh, and, and he looked at their diet and so on and so forth. And I, I know you mentioned that uh, in, in the books. Uh, we were both big fans of, of his work. Um, was that part of his discovery as well? That, that it was to do because it was mainly about food he was talking about. But you're you're saying there's changes in the face because we've changed the way we breathe. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Or yeah, the two are going hand in hand. And um, why is the shape? Why is the the shape of the face changing? It's probably a number of different reasons. One is lack of chewing. You know, our ancestors would have eaten food that was very tough. Um, the, the the food wasn't coming off a supermarket shelf. There was no McDonald's. And that's one of the good things about COVID is that McDonald's is shut down. Burger King is shut down and all of those crap outlets. And the only thing is I'd feel sorry for is the employees. But certainly that's one of the better benefits of humanity with these places locked down. And hopefully they're, they're locked down for good. That's not going to happen, of course. But there's a few different things. Um, breastfeeding is really important for the development of the face and the jaws. It's not just about nutrition. And, you know, society's put a lot of pressure on mothers, so I'm not going to put any blame on mothers here. But society, having mothers, parents and couples are up to their neck in mortgages. Both couples have to work. And, you know, we have to think about, this is really about coming back to basics. Weston Price, he identified that, and he identified the link between processed food. And also, when he talked about the group of individuals living in the Hebride Islands, who were eating, they were eating fish and oatmeal and um, something like angel cake or something. I don't know, whatever it was that they were eating. But in terms of they had primitive food for decades, for tens of thousands of years. And when modern, when modern commerce started coming to the islands with marmalades and jams and chocolate and everything else that comes with it, first generation children became outbreeders. This hadn't happened before. And he identified that in page 55 or 56 of his book. Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And then if you go even further back to George Caitlin, who was a painter in the United States, and he taught that the, the tribal traditions of the North American Indians were dying out, so he went to live with them. And he noticed that the primitive cultures, those individuals who were seen as the scavengers, you know, and everything else in negative terms, but yet every time that the young infant baby had the mouth open, the mother would gently press its lips together. So our ancestors knew about the importance of nasal breathing. And nowadays it gets absolutely no attention. I was in Chicago at a medical conference there about two years ago. And this professor of medicine, he said that it doesn't make any difference whether you breathe through your nose or through your mouth. And I have to wonder what sort of planet is he on? Because he is an individual who is teaching medicine and good health. And he is really missed out here. You cannot reach your full potential if you go around with your mouth hanging open. And our children, 25 to 50% of studied children are persistently mouth breathing. Karen Bonnock did an excellent study in Stratford-upon-Avon, eight-year study looking at 11,000 children. These children were with mouth breathing and sleep disorder breathing. I'm not saying that, you know, mouth breathing is the full impact here, but she looked specifically at sleep disorder breathing. 
and mouth breathing is one of the risk factors for sleep disorder breathing. These children, if untreated by age eight, they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs. Children who are sleepy and breathing is playing a role with this. They have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. These kids will never reach their full potential. I was one of those children. I was going into school, into secondary school, falling asleep at a desk. And for me to get grades, I had to spend 10 hours a day studying. That's what got me into university. Not every child or teenager is going to do that. I think it's really time that we wake up that our ancestors had it right in this instance, that we've taken two steps back. Okay, I want to summarize and then move to steps we can do to, uh, you know, your, your bolt uh, method and, and, and the breathe light, breathe right. We'll get on to how we change our breathing in a moment. But can I summarize then the benefits of breathing through the nose rather than through the mouth? Uh, and I would say the points are uh, oxygen level is 95 to 98% saturated anyway. So deep breathing through the mouth doesn't, even though you might... Uh, think that it helps, doesn't help. Over-breathing, breathing two big breaths, gets rid of carbon dioxide, and yet we need the carbon dioxide to help us offload that oxygen from our hemoglobin to the tissues, to the organs, to our muscles, and so on. Um, breathing through the nose, and I want to come on to this in quite a lot of depth later, nitric oxide, because we had Dr. Malcolm Kendrick on recently, who's a massive believer in the best way to avoid heart attacks is to do anything you can to increase nitric oxide in the body, whether that be from exercise, sunshine, foods like beetroot and so on that, have, that help create nitric oxide. Uh, but what you're saying is that we, uh, in, and I know in your book you say that the nose is a bit like an iceberg. You only see the tip of it like 30% and you've got like 70% in the background, that big chamber. Uh, and you're saying in the book that in that chamber there's nitric oxide and therefore Breathing through the mouth, we don't get nitric oxide. Breathing through the nose, we do. So, uh, so in summary, end of part one, if you like, not that we have any parts to these, but end of part one is the human body is designed to breathe through the nose and not the mouth. So shut this a little bit more, especially when you're sleeping and in the daytime and when you're exercising and try and force as much breath in and out, not as much, but breathe through the nose because that's what we're designed to do just over the last 100 years or so. And uh, I think we'll pick up in a bit about why we've changed the way we breathe, because it could be a lot to do with processed foods and stress. Uh, I think those two are the main reasons why we've probably changed the way we breathe. But for now, end of chapter one, if you like, we're designed to breathe through the nose and not through the mouth. And there are a myriad of health benefits for doing so. Is that a, a good sort of close on that first bit? Yeah, I'm just going to add just a couple of things just in case we forget. Calmness of the mind is never achieved by breathing through the mouth. And the reason being is because mouth breathing is fast breathing and activating the upper chest. And both fast breathing and activating the upper chest will cause agitation of the mind. Now, the other thing is sleep. If you have your mouth open, you're more likely to snore and have obstructive sleep apnea. And as a result, you are fatigued, you are tired. So just as I said that children will never reach their full inherited potential if they mouth-breed, neither do adults. And that point about chest breathing rather than where we're supposed to uh, and peacefulness and relaxation is part of the problem. When we mouth-breathe, we 
the body goes into uh, the FFF, the, the, the fight, the flight, the freeze mode, because I guess when we were running away from the tiger, the lion, the whatever, we, 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 I suppose we probably went into breath mode, and that's probably that, that, that minuscule extra bit of oxygen may have helped in that, that one sprint away from the lion. But because then we're in fight and flight mode, that releases cortisol, cortisol, our stress hormone, too much of that over a prolonged period, very, very bad for our health. So I guess if we're breathing all the time, we're telling the body we're in stress. It probably, maybe we are stressed, but it's certainly probably increasing our stress. Whereas breathing through the nose, the way we're supposed to, calms us down a bit. And if you and Malcolm Kendrick are right that nitric oxide is so, so important to help the blood vessels relax, maybe it's a, a spiral in the right direction by breathing through the nose, slowing it down, more nitric oxide, we become more relaxed. But breathing through the mouth too much, to be, to, uh, we're not getting nitric oxide. We're going into flight or, or, or fight or flight mode. And then because of that, we're getting more and more stressed. Um, so even stress levels, we're, we're suggesting it's very, very good for reducing stress levels. Is that, is that But true? there's no question. No question. And if you look at where the research in terms of slow breathing, and the reason I talk about slow breathing is because your nose will naturally slow down breathing because of the resistance created by the nose during wakefulness. It's two to three times that of the mouth. And we have to look at breathing from a number of different perspectives. It's about breathing light, which is conserving and harnessing and retaining or ensuring normal carbon dioxide in the blood. But it's also about breathing low or deep with lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. And at the same time, we should practice changing the cadence of our breath for different periods of time during the day to improve alveolar ventilation, but also to influence the autonomic nervous system. So light breathing is about slowing down and reducing breathing volume to create air hunger. And carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus to breathe. Slow, sorry, light breathing, deep breathing is about having, bringing the air deeper into the regions of the lungs. And also to bear in mind that in order to breathe deep, you don't have to breathe big. And that's the big mistake that people make. How many yoga studios will you go into? You open the door. If you were to look in, you will see that the instructor is emphasizing the biomechanics of breathing, but in the process is sacrificing the biochemistry of breathing. And cadence breathing to 5.5 and 6 breaths per minute. And again, our ancestors knew about this. Um, there's different mantras from Tibet and also from the, the Catholic religion, even though I know, just to give you a bit of a story, there's a church down in Waterford and the bishop kicked yoga out because he didn't want yoga being taught in the, in the church community hall. But if you look at the, the evolution of where the rosary, which is the prayer that's taught in the Catholic religion, and I'm, I'm a Catholic, even though I don't practice, but the, the evolution of that, it came from Tibet. And when researchers looked at, when you say the rosary, or if you say there's different mantras coming from Eastern medicine, that by saying that, it brings down the cadence of your breath down to 5.5 and 6 breaths per minute. And that's the ideal breath for helping bodily systems disturbed by stress. People with PTSD, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, depression. Now, you think of all of those individuals who are going into a healthcare professional. They go to their psychotherapist. They're, they're trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. But there's very little emphasis on breathing to help restore normal respiratory physiology. And there's very little emphasis on sleep. 
How can you have a calm mind if you have fast, shallow breathing with your mouth open all night long? Because if you're exhausted, it's going to contribute to anxiety. And if you have anxiety over a long period of time, that's going to feed into depression. We, can't, we have to get out of our silos here. As human beings, we are so resistant to change that we are afraid to look at anything outside of our own field. And yet, I was in that field too. For 20 years, stuck on the biochemistry of breathing. Now we need to open that up. So in terms of, to make it very simple, the best way to think of breathing is LSD. So any of your 1990s teenagers will remember that pretty easily. Light, L for light, slow, S for slow, and D for deep. And that's what you're always thinking about. It's not about taking big, fast, shallow breaths. It's about doing the opposite. How do you get it to go deep, Patrick, if you're doing it slow and light? They so see, if you put, they if you put your hands, Steve, on yeah. your lower two ribs yeah. at your sides, so place your hands on your lower two ribs at your sides, and now what I would like you to do is to breathe gently in and out through your nose, and don't worry about how you're doing it because it's only a bit of practice. I would like you to slow down the speed of the air coming into your nose, and at the top of the breath, bring a total feeling of relaxation to the body that you have a relaxed, gentle breath out. But as you're breathing in, I would like you to feel that your lower ribs are moving outwards. And as you breathe out, I would like you to feel that your lower ribs are moving inwards. And I would like you to breathe very light, very slow, and very deep. And now what I'm going to do is change the cadence of the breath so that as you breathe in, you're going to breathe in for four seconds. And as you breathe out, you're going to breathe out for six seconds but at the same time to breathe light. So to breathe in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five. And that would give you an example. Now, so the light breathing, you want to feel a little bit of air, air hunger. And the reason that you want to feel air hunger is because you're deliberately slowing down and reducing breathing volume to increase carbon dioxide in the blood because you want to reduce the body's sensitivity towards the gas carbon dioxide. Um, the primary stimulus to breathe is not oxygen. So it, the, the, the message to breathe by the body is not driven by oxygen. It's driven by carbon dioxide. As carbon dioxide increases in the blood, blood pH drops in the medulla, which is the primitive part of the brain. Of course, breathing has been around since day dot. So, you know, the, the part of the brain that looks after breathing is going to be housed in the very primitive part. That's monitoring primarily carbon dioxide and blood pH. And it's with the increase of CO2 that there is a stimulus or an impulse to breathe a scent from the brain via the phrenic nerve to the diaphragm. So we want light breathing, and we also want that lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. And it's also very important that when we breathe out, that we have a normal and full normal exhalation to allow the diaphragm to move back up to its resting position, because it's the exhalation that then allows for the inhalation. And it's all about functional breathing. Like 
if somebody comes into me, I'm concerned. Okay, I had a professional MMA fighter there about an hour ago. I'm concerned. How is that individual breathing during rest? How is that individual breathing during sleep? How is that individual breathing 24-7? And up until now, that individual has been mouth breathing, fast breathing, shallow breathing, with a both score of eight seconds at a very high level in sports and wondering why was why were they gassing out? You know, and it's not physical training that improves your breathing. The only fit sport that changes your breathing patterns is swimming. But all other sports, how you breathe during physical exercise is determined by how you breathe during rest. And my point here is, it's not how you breathe during a five or 10 minute session when you're in the studio with somebody. How is your breathing 24 seven? And if you have a habit of breathing that little bit faster and that little bit more upper chest, and if your bolt score is less than 25 seconds, it's indicative that there is breathing pattern disorders. And I would say change that because it will help you on many fronts. Now, you mentioned the Bolt score, which I now know what it is because I've read your book and I've been practicing daily and I've got mine up by about 15 seconds in just two weeks. Um, explain what the Bolt score is and how you do your body oxygen level test uh, because I'm sure people listening might want to experiment with this. And anyone that does experiment with this while we're talking, maybe press us on pause have a go and and honestly within if it's really low don't panic about it because mine was ridiculously low to start off with and we just heard from patrick that a professional sports person had a very low score explain to everybody what the bolt score is why it's important and how they tested it at home yeah to measure your bolt score you just need to sit down and sit down for about five minutes in other words don't be walking around and then decide to do it so sit down rest for about five minutes then take, you need a timer, so maybe have your phone or a stopwatch or something. Take a normal breath in and out of your nose. And then pinch your nose after exhaling. Or if you don't want to pinch your nose, just lock your throat, hold your breath. So you take a normal breath in and a normal breath out through your nose. And then hold your breath. And you are timing it in seconds. How long does it take after you stop breathing? to the point that you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary contractions of your breathing muscles. Then you let go of your nose and you breathe, but your breath at the end should be normal. So you can think of it as it's the length of time after you've stopped breathing until the brain sends the first definite reaction to breathe. How long can you stop breathing for before your brain says breathe? It's a comfortable breath all time. It's not a, a measure of maximum breath toll time, but it's, it's a useful measurement. And okay, sometimes people will find it a little bit tricky. Where's the exact point? Don't worry about it too much because if you're give or take one or two seconds, you know, I wouldn't be too wor much worried about it. However, Kiesel, the science is now catching up with this, even though breath toll time was first written about in 1975 by a researcher called Stanley as a measure of breathlessness. So if I look at somebody's breathing and I look at them sitting down, if I'm seeing fast upper chest breathing, and I'm not talking about they're having a panic attack. I'm just saying that their breathing is just a little bit faster than what it should be. It's upper chest. There's no natural pauses between breath. I measure that person's both score. It's typically 10 seconds. I would predict that they will gas out too soon, that they have increased lactic acid, that their recovery post-physical exercise is not good that they may be prone to exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, 
And also their sleep is impacted and their stress levels can be impacted. And I'm not saying that this is a cure-all. However, this up until, yeah, it's been written about in 2009, 2017, and then Kiesel is a professor of physical therapy from Evansville University in the United States. And he looked at 51 subjects, 27 years of age, and he used the BOLT score. He didn't call it BOLT, but he used the BOLT score as a screening test for dysfunctional breathing or breathing pattern disorders in the athlete population. And he said, if your BOLT score is greater than 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. So as I said to our professional athlete this morning, I need you to get your BOLT score up to a minimum of 25 seconds and a goal of 40 seconds. Because otherwise, all of those things that have been holding you back in sports is going to continue. And, you know, it's not just for the athlete, it's for the everyday person. If somebody comes in with asthma and you think of the UK, asthma rates typically about 8 to 10% of the population, 5.6 in around million people with asthma in the UK. And those individuals will have issues with their lungs. Their bowl score is less than 25 seconds. They will have a tendency towards a stuffy nose and they are tired all the time. And all of these things are being overlooked. You know, they're being overlooked because medication, of course, it serves a great purpose, but it's not teaching you to breathe through your nose and it's not teaching you to improve your sleep levels and it's not teaching you to slow down your breathing to have a calmness of the mind. No, I mean, it's just brilliant advice. And, and, and back to, you know, the way we got introduced in the first place, uh, you know, when I was talking to John Burgess, the wellness expert, you say the similar thing in the book that, look, you can't live more than a couple of minutes without breathing. You... You know, you can't go more than probably a day or two without water. You can probably go a month without food. And, you know, I've focused all my training and helping people lose weight on the food aspect and certainly hydration as well. But the point is, you, and, and I ignored breathing for so long because I, did, I just thought we breathe, that's it. There is no training to it. You just do it. Having read your book, it seems to me that I should be putting this almost to the top of my list when I'm trying to help people lose weight because so many people are, including myself, breathing wrong and certainly since reading your book, I've calmed down another level. Um, my bolt score has gone up. My sleep has felt a lot, lot better. I haven't noticed yet with my training, my, my weight training, whether that, that helps yet or, or, or not. But it, it's, it's going to change a lot of people's lives if they start to breathe right. And I'd, I'd ask anybody watching right now, watch right to the end. And then at the end, do get your book because it, although we're going to probably talk for an hour there's probably a four or five hour read in here. There's a lot more behind the scenes stuff here. But uh, back to the bolt, everybody have a go at that tonight or at the end of this program. See how long, do what uh, you just suggested, which is relax for a few minutes, five minutes first, breathe in and out normally, nice and slow, but through the nose, then hold the nose, hold the breath, get your mobile phone, stopwatch going, see what your bolt score is. Even if it's ridiculously low, don't panic about it because you just said, you know, and I know you've worked with Navy SEALs, your team, you've worked with, uh, Olympic uh, people in the Olympics and, and scores all over the place. The point is, if you can increase over a period of time by night and day breathing through this and not through this, then you're going to get more oxygen to where it needs to get. You'll get more red blood cells uh, and, and, and it helps on so many different levels. Yeah. And it's about like, ultimately, it's about improving bolt score, the bolt score should increase by about three to four seconds in the first few weeks, and then it gets stubborn. How do you increase the bolt score? 
practice reducing breathing volume for periods of 10 minutes or at least five minutes, five minutes to, to one set and, you know, doing at least two, five minute sets per, per group. <clears throat> so in terms of you'd want to be reducing breathing volume for at least 30 minutes a day to really make progress, unless you're doing a lot of physical exercise. And I would say to you is do your physical exercise with the mouth closed. Initially, it's more difficult because the air hunger is more intense. And the reason that the air hunger is more intense is because carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood because it cannot leave the body so quickly through the nose because the nose is a smaller exit as opposed to the, the mouth. So there is a resistance to breathing by breathing through the nose. However, if you do all of your physical exercise with your mouth closed, that forces the body to make adaptations. And with that, then ventilation is reduced. So you don't need as much air during physical exercise. And again, the science is only starting with this. Like in terms of bold score, that's now used in one of the phenotypes of obstructive sleep apnea by a Harvard medical doctor, Luciano Messino. And obstructive sleep apnea, we should tie that in with weight in a little while, but just with the bold score, now breath hold time is used as an indicator of one of the phenotypes called loop gain. And the other aspect about this is that with nasal breathing during sustained physical exercise, one professor of, of exercise science in the United States, his name is George Dallam, D-A-L-L-A-M. And he's, he's a well-known triathlete, but he's also a trainer of Olympic class athletes. He switched to nasal breathing during all of his physical exercise, probably about six years ago. And more recently in 2018, he did a study with 10 recreational athletes. He said to them, I need you to breathe exclusively through your nose for six months, and then I'm going to test you. During all of your physical exercise, only nasal breathe. And at the end of six months, he tested them nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. With nasal breathing, they had 22% less ventilation versus mouth breathing. So they were able to achieve 100% of the work rate intensity by breathing through their nose, but with 22% less effort. Now, that's a huge economical saving. And the amount of people, this has never been studied, the amount of people who have said to me over the years, my recovery post-physical exercise, it's almost that I could continue to do the physical exercise again, reduce lactic acid buildup, and prob probably that's due to nasal breathing. The body gets used to a higher carbon dioxide pressure in the blood, that more oxygen is getting to the working muscles. With more oxygen getting to the working muscles, the hydrogen ion coming from the working muscle gets oxidized um, so, you know, so it, to form water. So I think really we need, the science is starting to catch up there and we've got some room to go. But I would say you've got nothing to lose by switching to nasal breathing. And don't be afraid that, yes, during physical exercise, it's a bit tougher. Just go a little bit slower and continue sustaining nasal breathing and it gets easier in time. Now, before we get to weight loss, which is what most people uh, read my books for and follow the podcast, we will get there in a second. Before we do, let's talk about something that I'm really passionate about, because uh, one of my main concerns is I've, I've lost uh, three of my grandparents to cancer. I've lost uh, some really close friends to cancer at young ages. Uh, and I put a lot of that down to oxidization, free radicals, and so on. Uh, and I wrote in, in all my books about 
if you over-breathe, certainly if you're doing lots of jogging and lots of cycling, and uh, which I don't totally agree with all the time, for, it depends on your age and how thick you are, but you know, if you're doing too much of it and you are breathing in this way and you're over-putting oxygen in, more oxygen in, more oxidization, more free radicals, I guess by breathing through the nose, not taking in so much oxygen, because we're already at 95% plus oxygen that we need, so, so we don't want more, come, more in than just what's normal. By breathing through the nose, I guess we can have less free radicals, less oxidative stress. So maybe even on a cancer prevention sort of mission, it's something we should be uh, sort of advocating as well. Yeah, the, the connection there in terms, in terms of cancer, I haven't looked into it in detail, but here's my thoughts on it. Number one is the stress response. I've seen individuals, my own father died of cancer when he was 64 years of age, and he was a very stressed man, and he would have been what we would consider highly strong. Now, if he was to slow down breathing and to breathe through the nose, I think it would have made a huge difference. The other aspect was his sleep. He was a mouth breather. And he was prone to obstructive sleep apnea and snoring. And there is a link with obstructive sleep apnea and cancer. And there is also a link, of course, with obstructive sleep apnea and cardiovascular illnesses and other illnesses, including dementia, etc. So the breath can offer us a means. And we have to look at, I think it was Warburg who said back in the 1930s that when cells go hypoxic, that they're a breathing ground of cancer to something to that effect. We have to wonder, well, if that's the case, how can we breathe in order to improve oxygen delivery to the tissues and cells? And, you know, this is where carbon dioxide is coming to play in. Nasal breathing during physical exercise will ensure that we aren't overtraining, that we aren't overdoing it. Because if one has a low bolt score, their breathing is too hard to begin with. And then they go and do physical exercise. And the amount of air that they are breathing, the speed of their breathing, as well as the amplitude of each breath is going to be too much. This is causing too great a loss of carbon dioxide. Blood vessels constrict, but one of those blood vessels, some those blood vessels are not just constricting to you know working muscles, but also the heart, because our heart is a working muscle that needs its own blood flow and its own supply of oxygen. And it has been shown that if you hyperventilate, that you have coronary, you've got reduction in coronary blood flow. You also have what's called a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve basically the Bohr effect, as we spoke about, that less oxygen gets delivered to the working heart. This, in turn, changes the electrical conduct of the heart. So it can make individuals more, maybe more susceptible to cardi cardiovascular events. I think there's something in this, but the research isn't there, and that's why I can't, I can't show the, the connection with cancer. But I would say that, you know, are we more vulnerable to cancer if we're in a state of constant stress? Are we more vulnerable to cancer if we have dreadful sleep quality and obstructive sleep apnea? And on the basis of this, if you think Harvard professor, Dr. Herbert Benson, back in 1975, he wrote that book, The Relaxation Response, and he said, stresses make people sick. And on the basis that stress is making people sick, relaxation will help to make them better. And with relaxation, the breath is absolutely fundamental because it's true controlling of the breath that we can influence the functions of the autonomic nervous system that are outside of our control. We can influence our blood pressure, for example. We can cause vasodilation. We can increase the amount of blood flow. We can increase oxygen delivery. So we can really, you know, have a huge impact in terms of what's called heart rate variability, 
the sensitivity of the bioreceptors, increasing vagal tone, stimulating the vagus nerve. And all of these are all of these are functions of the body which are conducive to having good health. And we can do that through the breath. So I think definitely there is a huge connection between cancer and breathing. And I can't make any claims on it, but certainly it needs to have more research. So let's get on to uh, the topic and primal resetting and, and, and trying to help people lose weight because we know obesity is rife uh, in the UK and Ireland and, and the, the, the sort of modern world. Uh, chapter nine in your book, you uh, have some great case studies of people just by changing the way they breathe, getting them to, uh, we'll talk about taping up the mouth while you're asleep a little bit later, but by people really taking it seriously, you know, looking yes. at the way they breathe right now, maybe doing the bolt score, realizing that they maybe breathe through the mouth too much by just training their breathing, slowing down, relaxing through the nose in all the ways we've been discussing. Some phenomenal success in, uh, in, in weight loss. Give us a background to how you associate, you know, you know, good weight loss with mainly just changing the way you breathe. We, the connection is very difficult to show specifically, but it's mainly an observation over the last 18 years. And I can't always say that it will produce the same results for everybody. And again, that will need some research. However, we have seen it consistently enough times and um, because we have instructors, you know, I think in around 800 instructors who were affiliated directly with me. So we've had that feedback over the years that constantly when individuals, when they reduce the volume of air that they breathe, in other words, when they slow down their breathing for a period of time during the day to create air hunger, that in turn makes changes, physiological changes. And one of these can be a suppression of appetite. Now, how may that be happening? I only think of it maybe from two points of view. One is sleep. If we have obstructive sleep apnea, so say, for instance, you have somebody who is snoring and then they stop breathing or they may have a partial collapse of the airway during sleep, which is called a hypopnea. This in turn influences or affects hormones and two hormones are affected. One is ghrelin and ghrelin is a promoter of food appetite and leptin, which is a, a suppressant of appetite. When you have obstructive sleep apnea, you have a greater tendency to want to eat more food. And the problem is that when you eat more food than during the day, you put on weight. When you put weight on, you put weight on your, on your throat, on the neck. You increase the size of your tongue, which occupies more space in the mouth, encroaches the airway. When you have increased weight on your neck, your airway is smaller. And we all know that obstructive sleep apnea is more prevalent in men with an neck size or an neck circumference of more than 17 inches. But also when you put on weight, you put weight on the belly. And as a result, it reduces the movement of the diaphragm. And the diaphragm is your main breathing muscle separating the chest from the abdomen. But when you don't breathe low, when you don't have full function of the diaphragm, it reduces lung volume and your throat is more liable to collapse during sleep. So I think in order for, for weight, if I was to say to somebody is, I really think that you need to be looking at two things to help control weight. One is your sleep quality, because if your sleep quality is not right, you are going to be feeling more hungry. And do some research in that field. Look at obstructive sleep apnea. Ask your partner, are you breathing hard? 
you know, do, do you have your mouth open? Is your tongue midway? or Because, of course, if you're mouth breathing, your tongue isn't going to be in the roof of the mouth. And mouth breathing does increase the risk of obstructive sleep apnea. And also, you shouldn't have to get up to go to the bathroom during the night. But with people who mouth breathe, they have a tendency towards that. This is showing then that they have sleep fragmentation. Their sleep is getting disrupted. These individuals, then not all of them will wake up tired, but many of them will wake up tired. You should never wake up tired in the morning. I woke up feeling exhausted every morning for 20 years. And it was when I started changing my breathing patterns. And listen, I have nothing to sell here because you could start doing this from the basis of this podcast. Go get a paper tape from your local chemist, 3M Micropore tape. Don't wear it if you've drank alcohol. Yeah, maybe one or two pints be fine. But of course, you know, you have to be common sense prevail here. Don't use it if you're pregnant. Don't use it if you're very, very unwell. But even if your nose is a little bit stuffy, you can open up your nose by holding your breath. And this has been known since 1923. So to decongest your nose, and again, don't do it if you're pregnant or if you have any serious medical issues, don't do it. But to decongest your nose, simply take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose, pinch your nose, hold your nose, and start walking around your room. And walk, walk for a period of time until you feel a medium to strong air hunger. Then let go, breathe in through your nose, wait 30 seconds, do it again. And do it a few times and your nose opens, but also during that breath hold, you increase blood flow to the brain. So it can help with your concentration. So there's no reason for you to have your mouth open during sleep because the vast majority of people, we can get them breathing through the nose using the nasal decongesting exercise. And what's more, the nose is that organ that the more we use it, the better it works. The reason that your nose isn't working as well as it should be because you're going around with your mouth hanging open. And there's no animal that does that with the exception of a dog. If we look at the nature, if we look at the animal world, and if you look at wild animals, there's none of them out there taking full big breaths in the belief that it's beneficial for them. There's none of them out there going around with their mouths open, except for dogs who use their tongue to help regulate body temperature. But if farm animals are very sick, they tend to mouth breed. And we as trout, as I said, all of our ancestors were innate nasal breathing as evident by the shape of the jaws. Because in order to have completely straight teeth and a nice wide maxilla, that's shaped by the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. And your tongue is only resting in the roof of the mouth if you're breathing in and out through your nose. I have a modern shape. My nose is bent because my maxilla is too set back. My mandible is too set back. I have a double chin and I have a small airway. So my airway is totally compromised. I'd never be an athlete. And I've always had an issue with sleep, but I've been able to compensate with it to a good degree by putting these exercises into practice. So I know I went off on a bit of a tangent, Steve, and sometimes that's the risk of when you're talking to me. <laughs> because well, sometimes no, I start and I don't know where to stop, you know, but that's, that's no, no, the way no, no, it is. Great. wasn't so much a tangent. <laughs> But you were quite rightly doing all the disclaimers about don't try this if you're pregnant, if you've had too much to drink. But you missed the point, uh, I think, of uh, you know, as long as you're in good health and you're not drank too much, you would start to talk about the tape and taping your mouth up when you sleep, but we didn't actually mention that. Yes. So really, you know, when people are trying to lose weight, there's two things coming back to here is I think we really need to get our sleep quality right because 
it's fundamental. You know, it's 15 years ago, nobody was talking about sleep. And I'll give you a story. I speak at many conferences internationally, and many of them is on the topic of sleep. And one doctor who has sadly passed away called Dr. Christian Guimano, he was the doctor who, who coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea back in the 1970s. He developed the apnea hypopnea index. He's considered as the founding father or one of them of sleep medicine. I've seen him get up at medical conferences and he says to his doctor peers, you have been talking about everything in the room about sleep, but you have missed the elephant in the room and the elephant in the room is nasal breathing. And the, for the past five years, six years before his death, he wrote many papers on the importance of restoring nasal breathing during sleep. And he said, children, and it's, of course, it doesn't just relate to children. Children's brains are getting fried. And it is true, because as I said with Karen Bonnock's study, mouth-breathing children who are at a greater risk of sleep problems, they have a 40% increased risk of special education needs. So as adults, we need quality sleep for function. But for a child, their brain is growing, and that's why they need quality sleep. And how can we lose weight if we're in a state of exhaustion, if we're in a state of stress, if we're in a state of adrenaline, if we're in a state that hormones are impacted as a result of stopping breathing during sleep? And the second thing is, you know, I think it's normal to say that, yes, when we are in a state of stress, that there is a tendency to, to reach to the cupboard or to reach to the fridge, to eat more food as a comfort. And really, when we start getting a better balance between parasympathetic, which is our rest and digest, and sympathetic, which is our fight or flight, when we improve resilience, and we can do that through the breath, there are so many papers now on this in terms of studies looking at slow breathing and heart rate, bio, heart rate variability biofeedback. And this could be a simple measure of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. So basically our heartbeat, and I don't want to go too much. I'll remember where to come back to. There is a synchronization between the timing of our heartbeat and our breathing. When we breathe in, so if you had your listeners or if your listeners were just to locate their pulse, and as they breathe in, they should notice that their heartbeat is getting that bit faster. And as they breathe out with a slow exhalation, their heartbeat should be slowing down. The speed of their heartbeat should be slowing down. The exhalation is responsible. That's parasympathetically driven. That's entirely under the control of the vagus nerve. So say, for instance, you have people who are in stress. They have fast upper chest breathing. That's keeping them stuck in that state of stress. Of course, stress changes our breathing patterns, but how we breathe feeds back into stress. So physiologically, Stanford Medical School in March of 2017, they identified a new structure in the brain in the locus coronis, and they said that this structure is spying on your breathing. When you breathe fast, the mind is agitated, and you're also more likely to be awoken from sleep. When you breathe slow, the mind calms. So when you slow down your breathing, and also when you slow down your breathing to a cadence of 5.5 and 6 breaths per minute, just as we were doing earlier on, that will help to improve the balance between the parasympathetic and sympathetic. That's a measure of resilience in the individual. And with that, we should expect 
that we have less of a tendency or a need to overeat. No, absolutely. Uh, and I'll come back to one, one thing on the sleep and then I'll come back to the food. So uh, we still haven't said about taping your mouth up, but don't worry, it's in the book. Uh, in fact, let's keep that as a little bit of a secret. To, to get I'll do a demonstration, right? I'm going to give two demonstrations, yeah? Yep. This is a tape which you buy in a local chemist. Mm -hmm. It's called 3M one-inch micropore tape. Um, if they want to look at the box there. Okay. So with that, you take off about six inches or so. You fold a little tab over at the top and a little tab over at the bottom. You dry your lips and then you simply tape your mouth. Got it? Yep. The next tape is my own tape because we have, of course, people with anxiety coming in. Do you know 80% of people with anxiety and panic disorder have breathing pattern disorders? That's in wow. the literature. Wow. And yet these individuals, the one thing that's often overlooked is how are they breathing and how are they sleeping? So that's why we have this tape. Well, actually, we had it developed first for kids. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is because how could we get children to breathe through their nose during sleep? And I didn't want to be taping them up, you know, because if, if they got sick or something. And I'm not talking about two-year-old kids. I'm talking about four or five years of age plus. Yeah. So this tape is called Myotape. Mm -hmm. And it's kinesio tape. It's hypoallergenic. It's cotton. You stretch it. And it surrounds the mouth. Of course, I've made a little bit of a mess in it there and putting it on. But you get the idea. I stretched it by about 30%. And there's an elastic tension there to bring the lips together. Got and it. that will help to ensure nasal breathing. For a lot of people that would be worried about putting tape over there just in case of, of whatever, yeah. then you've got the best of both worlds with your tape, haven't you? Because if you had to get a breath or you were worried about a breath, you could still do it. But it's just yes. encouraging, I take it, just it is encouraging the, the lips to close, the jaw to close. Yeah, and yeah. That, and it's holding it there and there's no risk. And it's, it's called myotape. Right, next thing then. So... Without shadow of a doubt, since I've been trying your technique, what I've personally found is, and I'm very good, I'm what I call a nomad, I only eat one meal a day anyway, um, but what I, what I always used to struggle with sometimes is see my friends having a little bit of a snack in the afternoon and I'd have to exercise a bit of willpower there, uh, 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 you know, concentrate not to go and have a snack or, uh, because I want to stay a nomad. Um, but what I've found with your technique is that when I think, oh, I might just break the rule now and have a snack, close my eyes, concentrate on breathing through the nose, really slow it down. And because I go into this ultra relaxed state, because one of the things with habits and, and habits of eating food, once it becomes you get the cue uh, and then you get the reward at the other end, but quite often the reward is relaxation. So when people are stressed or anxiety, the reason they reach for food is because the cue was the, I'm feeling anxious or a certain time of day or the location, whatever the cue is, might even be that horrible M sign outside that, uh, that fast uh, <laughs> chain. <laughs> but whatever the cue is, it's always about the reward that triggers, you know, the, the craving and so on. And quite often the reward with people that are stressed is they believe, a bit like when smokers smoke, they believe the smoke stops and, you know, when they're having that big drag, they, they believe that, you know. Anyway, the point I'm getting to is I think one of the reasons it helps with weight loss is that, 
that moment that you get the cue to go and eat the food, if you can go to your techniques that you talk about in the book, the deep, deep, slow, your LSD, your, uh, you know, uh, was it LSD? Long, yeah, yeah. slow, Light. deep. Um, slow, you know, deep, if you, yeah. If you do that for a minute or two, quite often it will quash the craving to go to the cupboard or the fridge, as you say, because what you've done is you've, you've had the same trigger, you've changed rather than going for the food, you've changed what you do, the, the actual process, you've changed it from eating to actually slow breathing, and you might get the same result coming out the other side. Yeah, it's a great observation. Thanks for that. Um, it's funny, uh, something similar from a, a guy from Hungary, one of our uh, colleagues, Peter Lakatos, and Peter was saying that he was doing breath holding for a similar, Peter fasts a lot, and uh, he, like, he'll do seven-day fasts and things like that. So, But he was saying that if there was a cue as well, he would do something very similar. He would take a normal breath in and out through his nose, hold his nose, and walk 10 to 15 paces holding his breath. And that also was, was, called, was helping to, to, to change the need for food. And maybe to do that and take a minute's rest and do it again, take a minute's rest. Again, if you're pregnant, don't do any strong breath holds or if you have serious medical conditions. But I think, yeah, it would be interesting for your listeners to uh, put that into practice. And back to our ancestors. I know we're going all over the place, but I, think, I hope it's fitting the jigsaw for everybody. Um, back to where do we screw all this up in, in evolution? You know, uh, how, how come we used to breathe properly when we were hunting and gathering, and how do we get it wrong today? Could that be, and I think you touch on it in the book a, a little bit, around the pH level so that... You know, our body, for those that don't understand pH, you've got acidic down one end, you've got alkaline the other end, it's a scale from 1 to 14. Uh, and the natural food that we eat would normally be more alkaline, uh, and yet a lot of the, the food that we eat in fast foods, packaged foods, processed foods, all the stuff we try and get you, encourage you to avoid, is more acidic. And then, because that then ties in with the breathing, could we be gasping for air more because we've changed the pH in our food? It's possible. And it, it, it could be a plausible theory there. Um, if you think of it this way, if you look at the breathing patterns of people who are unhealthy and people who are obese, you'll typically see fast and shallow breathing. And oftentimes it's going together. Now, you could ask the question, is it that they have a poor breathing pattern? Because the primary regulator of blood pH is not food, it's breath. It's true carbon dioxide. And blood pH needs to be about 7.365. And if it's too acidic to 6.8, we die. And if it's too alkaline to 7.8, we die. So the body is always striving for that balance of 7.365. However, if you overbreed, you get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. And this increases blood pH. And the body doesn't want to have too alkaline blood pH. And one way, that the body can help normalize blood pH is for individuals to have a craving for acid-forming foods. And that's only a theory that how we are breathing, the hyperventilation, if we are in chronic hyperventilation, meaning that our breathing is just a little bit too fast, a little bit too hard, every minute, every hour, every day, that we have a tendency to eat acidic-forming food to help normalize blood pH. So it's a theory. Um, and, you know, that remains to be proven. I might, add that, I, might, I might add that to my list of, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about, certainly on the Primal Reset program, is what drives hunger. 
So, for example, uh, you know, the, you talked earlier on about uh, leptin and ghrelin. So, ghrelin is a hormone that says, I need to eat. It's your hungry hormone. One of the things we teach people a lot is that that can't, you know, ghrelin can't uh, sort of dissociate between, is it nutrition I'm after? Am I, you know, missing vitamin C, magnesium? Am I really hungry for energy? Uh, or am I thirsty? It doesn't even, it can't even dissociate whether it's a thirst or hunger. So the first thing we say to people is have a glass of water and see if the hunger goes away because, you know, that might be the case. Other people we say, take your multivitamins first thing in the morning because this whole thing about you must eat breakfast is complete nonsense. Um, you know, I'm much healthier personally as a nomad. Some people still want breakfast, but then they, if they want breakfast, that's absolutely fine. Most of my children still have breakfast. But we cut down the amount of breakfast, we change what they have for breakfast. But the point is, if you take your multivitamin in the morning, it could be that your body was crying out for nutrition, nothing to do with hunger for energy. So by having your glasses of water, by having some vitamins in the, in the morning, you might quash your hunger. It may be, and I've only just thought this up, having spoken to you now, uh, and also talking to you now and reading your book, it may be the body saying, my pH is out of balance. So ghrelin knows the pH is out of balance. You breathe badly. So it's saying, you've got to go and eat some stuff because, because I know what you eat normally for breakfast. And at least that's getting your pH back in line. It just could be another driver for that hungry hormone telling us to constantly eat. Yes, it, 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 it's, it's possible. And I've spoken with some nutritionists. We have one, one of our colleagues, Mim Baim from, from Australia, who's a well-known nutritionist. And I think the jury is still out there. But the one thing is, again, it comes back to that practicing breathing exercises, we have seen a reduction of appetite. So we've seen it work in practice. Um, and how is it happening? That remains to, be, remains to be seen. Yeah, well, it's a bit like the microbiome, isn't it? We, we, we know that looking after the microbiome is a good thing. It's going to take us years and years to work out why getting the good bacteria and how you get the good bacteria and all the different combinations it's going to take, we know it's having an effect. It's just, it's undeniable. It's having an effect. But what's causing that? We, we, we haven't joined all the dots yet. Uh, what we haven't talked yeah. about yet, effectively by slowing our breathing, doing some bolt exercises maybe once a day, you know, actually completely restricting, uh, you know, uh, taking in new oxygen for however long we can hold for a couple of times a day and then practicing uh, a breathe slow uh, to, you know, uh, techniques. Uh, what we haven't yet touched on is effectively we are replicating altitude training, are we not? And one thing that we know from studying the blue zones around the world, if you look at where people live into their hundreds and super centenarians into 110, a lot of those areas are at altitude. So we think possibly a lot of people are living longer in mountains than us at sea level because they're taking in less oxygen, because of course you take less when you're at a higher altitude. And that's why you know, the Kenyans are such good runners, because they always run at altitude. And that's why you know, there's always been you know, training at altitude. Slowing down our breathing, doing it through the nose, may have the same effect. And maybe, A, that's helping with longevity. But the point I was going to make more was that one of the things observational that I've seen at altitude is there are a lot less Fat people, I, I do loads of skiing, mm -hmm. I've got a house in Switzerland, I see lots less fat people, even though their diet may not look that great, but at altitude, they just seem to be healthier and a lot more slender. And I wonder if just, again, without knowing the reasons why and all the science, maybe that is just that, 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 that sort of restricting the breathing, slowing it down, is like living 
at a higher altitude. Yeah, in terms of generating intermittent hypoxia, um, we do that not necessarily by slowing the breathing, but by actually stopping breathing, by holding the breath. And just you could practice this yourself, for instance, with a pulse oximeter. And again, these are the exercises that you don't do if you have serious medical issues or if you're pregnant. But you could practice it. Take a normal breath in and out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold and start walking, holding your breath and then walk faster, go into a jog and keep holding your breath until you feel a relatively strong air hunger. And at the end of that, then let go, but breathe in through your nose, but minimize your breathing. Breathe hardly any air then for about six breaths or about 18 seconds or so. And then go back to normal breathing. Go back to normal breathing for about a minute and repeat. And that's intermittent hypoxic training. And that's designed to stress the body, to force the body to make adaptations. Now, some of those adaptations, there is no doubt that we are dropping blood oxygen saturation because we test it all the time using pulse oximetry, which is a handheld or a finger held device that you just put on your pointing finger. And it's measuring how fully loaded is your hemoglobin with oxygen. Typically, we will drop the blood oxygen saturation down to about 85%, which is akin to about 4,500 meters at altitude. So we're able to get a pretty decent altitude. We can simulate that, and you can do this from your sitting room. So I think there could be something in that, that we are putting the body into an anaerobic state. Um, and again, it, it, it's just a theory, but there are other benefits to why we do it. Number one is that it helps open up the nose and airways. So it's very good for people with asthma, for example. Number two is it increases blood flow to the brain. And number three is if, for example, you do have a lot of worries on your mind, you know, the last thing that you can probably do when there's an emotional turmoil there is slow down your breathing because your mind is a bit all over the place. Instead, do breath holds, but don't hold the breath to the point that it puts you into a stress response. Number four, when you do a breath hold, your spleen, which is your blood bank, contains 8% of your red blood cells, richly, densely packed hematocrit, very high, 80% of the, the blood is, is hematocrit, which means that it's richly, densely packed in terms of carrying oxygen carrying capacity. When you do five strong breath holds, like I described, your spleen releases red blood cells into circulation. So you can improve oxygen carrying capacity. And there's probably other things going on there as well. We're, we're stressing the body to put it into a sympathetic activation because we're living very much in comfortable times. You can imagine our ancestors. Um, they would have been out in cold weather. They would have been food deprived. They, they would have been, many of them in terms of getting food, evolutionary theorists will say that the spleen is one of those organs of the human body because we would have been getting our food on the seafloor and we're going down, doing diving and coming back up. So we have that unique ability as human beings that we have a reservoir there. We have a blood bank, but we never tap into it. And if you see swimming, if you see kids down at a local swimming pool and I see my own daughter, they love getting a little a diving stick or, you know, and throw the stick into the water and then they go afterwards. And they're going down and they're holding their breath underwater. They're coming up, they're gasping for air. And we've all done that. Throughout our evolution, we always did it. There is something unique about the human being in terms of getting into the water and doing breath holds. 
But for most adults, we have lost that. We don't swim, you know. So breath tolling could be a way to tap into a very primitive function that we were doing throughout our evolution. Yeah. And there could be benefits with that. No, you're absolutely right. what people forget, you know, I, I live just outside of Birmingham. Birmingham's got a population of about 2 million, just Birmingham. It's a little tiny little dot in, in terms of the entire planet. But people forget that till 10,000 years ago, the entire planet had less than 2 million people. And nearly all of that 2 million were living near water because fish was a, a, an important part uh, of, of, of our diet. So they're either on the coast or near rivers. And, and of course, uh, you know, diving down to catch the fish. I always talk evolution about how evolution takes a long time. The reason why our toes and fingers go wrinkly when we're in the bath for an hour uh, is because that's how we used to grab the fish with our hands and, uh, and you know, need our toes to be on rocks and so on. So we were underwater. Uh, holding our breath for a lot, lot longer than, than, than we do today uh, without, without doubt. Um, I want to just pick up on a, a last couple of things with you then. So um, you mentioned right at the very beginning uh, back pain and how people suffering with back pain, maybe by just looking at the way you breathe, uh, looking at you know breathing slow, breathing correct. Um, how, give me again that association between maybe reducing sort of chronic pain or, or pain in the back uh, may help with getting your breathing right. So our diaphragm breathing muscle, which is separating um, our chest from our abdomen, that breathing muscle is not just responsible for respiration. And the best way to probably explain it is you can imagine a weightlifter. As they breathe in, sorry, as they're lifting the weight, they will typically breathe in and hold their breath. And the reason being is because as they breathe in, their diaphragm is moving downwards. And it's they're bracing the abdomen, that the abdomen becomes like a pneumatic balloon to provide stabilization for the spine. So this is a generation of what's called intra-abdominal pressure, that the diaphragm is also providing stability. But individuals with lower back pain have a greater tendency to breathe fast in upper chest. And as a result, they, they aren't getting the benefit of diaphragmatic breathing for providing that stability of the spine. Um, I've seen anecdotally many people talking when they switched to nasal breathing that it led to a reduction in back pain. And I'm going to say a few things here and people can do their own research on it. With regards pain perception, when you breathe hard, you're more likely to perceive pain. When you slow down your breathing, and one paper came out just in the last couple of months, they had some strange study, but they, they literally exposed people to hot objects to give them a burn. And they measured their pain perception as they were breathing different rates of breathing, 15 breaths per minute or their normal spontaneous breathing rate or six breaths per minute. When the individuals breathed six breaths per minute, light, slow, deep, they had less pain. So pain can be influenced by the speed of our breathing, but also the biomechanics of our breathing. And for people who want to delve a little bit further, Look at the work of osteopath from the UK, who I believe has passed on, Leon Chato, C-H-A-I-T-O-W. And he has talked about this for 20 years, lower back pain and dysfunctional breathing. So I think it's worth exploring. And no, there's absolutely no question that there is a link between functional breathing and functional movement. You cannot have functional movement unless you have functional breathing. So unless breathing is normalized, Movement isn't normalized. And if you don't have functional movement, you are at a risk, greater risk of injury, including lower back pain. 
And one screen that's used is called the functional movement screen, the FMS. And I know it has its critics and some people say that it doesn't stand up, but you know, it's still popular. 87.5% of people who passed the functional movement screen were classified as diaphragmatic breathers, 87.5%. Wow. So again, we have to think of the bidirectional relationships in the human body and breathing is, is at that foundation. I think you might have answered my next question then really, really well without realizing it. So um, Wim Hof, uh, who I've not had on the program yet, but I'd, I'd like to go on at some stage because I believe in taking a cold shag. I think it's really good for the immune system. I do it most mornings. Uh, and up until reading your book a week ago, I used to do another thing that Wim Hof does, which is really heavy, heavy breathing, but through the mouth, which I now think is completely wrong. Um, and I really still, even though I was doing what he told me, found having the cold shower an absolute nightmare. I hated it. I did it because I know it's good for my health. And then about a week ago, I switched to your method of just breathing through the nose, slow and deep while I'm having the cold shower. And I'm finding I'm lasting longer. It's not as painful. And I was going to ask you, why is that? And I think you just answered that. Is it because it changes the way the body perceives pain? Yes, I think that's part of it. And also, if, for instance, you were doing ice baths, one of the best things to do is to surrender into it. And surrendering into it is that you're bringing your attention into the breath and really slowing down your breathing. Because if we try to fight it, it has the opposite effect. But when we surrender into it, we're able to relax into that environment and we should be able to, to tolerate it better. But I think the pain perception... That's something that we've seen. And, you know, there's another aspect here, Steve, that's for women. Women have completely different breathing to men. And they're very much exposed to breathing pattern disorders because of changes in hormones. So for a woman, for instance, um, during their monthly cycle, I think it's the, the luteal phase. And of course, as a man, I've avoided this subject for 20 years. But only now I'm starting to go down that path. And it's absolutely amazing that 50% of my students coming in were female and I completely overlooked. And all of the research is also overlooking the fact that, you know, the, the female hormones and changes in hormones and the influence that that's having on breathing. And the reason that I bring it up is also pain because during the, the luteal phase, the, the, it can be a tendency because of is a progesterone, which is a respiratory stimulant, that increased breathing will cause a drop of carbon dioxide by up to 25%. That will affect that woman's anxiety levels, their sleep, their pain. And it was by chance, I was, I was working with a musician here from a well-known band here in Ireland. They're international as well. And I was working with him because of, just in terms of preparation for getting on stage for breathing. And I know you mentioned about the brown paper bag at the very, very start for stage fright, but we, of course, we use breathing. But in the process of talking to him, we spoke about his fiance and his fiance were, was going through all of these symptoms and she had read the book and she started making progress. And I said to myself, why on earth did I avoid or miss this? This is crying out for attention. So for the new book, we'll have a section on women's breathing, which has been overlooked despite despite the, the application of it out there. Yeah, in fact, the, 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 uh, the brown paper bag thing, we, we, took, we talked about that before we actually <laughs> hit the, rec the record button. Uh, uh, let me just explain to everybody what you talked about there. Um, 
Back in 99, uh, I was running a, some people will know, remember a business called jungle.com and uh, we were trying to float the business and it was all going wrong and I, I'd got a, almost a thousand staff in the UK and it looked like everybody was going to lose their job and I was highly, highly stressed as you can imagine. Twice in about three, a period of three weeks, I ended up calling 999 in the middle of the night to my house because I thought I was having a heart attack. And the advice, they, went, they wired me all up to the machines. They went, there's nothing wrong with you whatsoever that we can find. Uh, and they both times got me blowing into a brown paper bag to slow down the amount of oxygen I was putting in. So I guess uh, that kind of leads back to that whole thing we've been talking about throughout the entire hour, which is when we're stressed, we breathe wrong. The more we breathe wrong, the more stressed we be. And it's just that downward spiral. We can just step back, yes. think what you've taught us brilliantly through the hour and brilliantly uh, in your book, which I, I want everybody to go out and get, which is the more stress you get, take time to say, hang on, what was it that Patrick said? He said, close my mouth, concentrate on my breathing, nice and slow, slow down the amount of breaths per minute, uh, LSD, so long, slow and deep, and see if that uh, you know, helps solve the problem. Yeah. It's Definitely. And just sorry to cut across, just to give you the explanation on the brown paper bag, even though it's not entirely safe. So I just bear in mind to people, the reason that the brown paper bag works is because when you are in, when we, we are in a stress mode, we breathe too hard and we get rid of too much carbon dioxide. And every one millimeter drop of CO2, one millimeter drop of mercury pressure of CO2, it reduces blood flow to the brain by 2%. But that puts the central nervous system in, into a state of excitation. We feel our hunger. We breathe too hard. The purpose of the bag was to trap carbon dioxide, to rebreathe that carbon dioxide back into the lungs, to increase it in the blood, to inf increase blood flow to the brain and oxygen delivery to the brain. But don't use a brown paper bag. Use your hands. If you're in a state of extreme hyperventilation, simply cup your hands like this. and breathe slowly into your hands. Because as you cup your hands, you're gonna pull carbon dioxide, and that's gonna have a similar effect, but also you can get sufficient oxygen in through your fingers, so you have no risk. Um, and the other thing is, is small breath holes, which I've described in the book, because I think the group of individuals who are more prone to anxiety, they're often told to meditate and to be mindful. How on earth can you meditate? when the mind is all over the place. The very group that would get the most out of meditation will find it most difficult to do. And with that, and I give them different breathing exercises, and I found this out by chance. I've made plenty of mistakes over the years, and this is what 18 years of experience does. I've had guys, I put them into severe fight and flight as a result of doing breath holding. And that's why I can be very cautious with the exercises that we do, because our breathing is absolutely utmost powerful. We need to tailor it to the individuals. And I'd say to anybody is, you know, gently and gradually crawl with this, but you'll never go wrong by breathing through your nose, by gently slowing down the speed of your breath to feel a tolerable air hunger and gently sustain that. And as you do it for, say, three to four minutes, check the saliva in your mouth. Check the temperature internally of your fingers. Can you bring your body into a parasympathetic state simply by slowing down your breathing? Can you influence the 70,000 miles of blood vessels throughout the body? 
simply by slowing down your breathing and by breathing less. Practice it and see what happens. Uh, it's fabulous, fabulous uh, advice, Patrick. And let's just finish by a quick summary then for everybody. If they're trying to get their, their health back in order, um, the key things are try what, once, twice, 10 times a day to do you know, holding your breath in, in the way that you've described, you know, measuring your bolt maybe the first few times you do it and a week later see if you've improved, you know, that period of time. And it's a com is it a combination of both? So it's a combination of holding your breath a few times a day, uh, maybe even 10 times a day, so you're really restricting the amount of oxygen coming in. And also, though, as much as you can, day, night, and exercise, so three different times, try and breathe slow, deep, but through the nose and not through the mouth. Is that a, a good summary? Yeah, to, to, give a, to, to give a kind of a, a general program is switch to nasal breathing at all times, as you say. And even during physical exercise, keep your mouth closed. And if the intensity gets too much, just go a bit slower. Allow your nose to determine the intensity of your exercise. Tape your mouth at night. Very, very important. With that then, practice slowing down and reducing your breathing towards air hunger. And do it, say, five to ten minutes, three to four times daily. And I know that sounds a bit, but like you could be watching TV in the evening and especially do it if you have insomnia. Practice slowing down and reducing your breathing for 15 minutes before you go to sleep. And you can do this watching TV. You're watching television. With that, put one hand on your chest, one hand just above your navel and gently reduce the volume and the speed of your breathing. And it will activate a body's parasympathetic response that your sleep is deeper. And you'll also find that you'll have to wake up earlier because you won't need as much sleep. Your, your quality of sleep is so much better. And if you wanted to stress yourself a little bit, do five repetitions of breath holds because typically we do five. There is a law of diminishing returns. So we kind of do five to get the maximum effect and do that once to two times daily. But don't do the breath holding if you're pregnant or serious medical conditions. Um, but other than that, you know, breath holding is beneficial for opening up your nose, very beneficial for adults, sorry, for asthma. And if I just make this point, for children, we've put our breathing program for children absolutely free of charge because I never wanted children going around with their mouths open. And we've always had a little bit of resistance to this. You know, children with asthma, constantly breathing through them out. These kids are tired. They're not coping academically. They've got craniofacial abnormalities as a result of it. And if you look at the work of anthropologists and orthodontist, Dr. Professor John Mew and his son, Mike Mew, he has been absolutely criticized by the dental profession for 50 years. He's spoken about the importance of restoring nasal breathing for correct craniofacial growth. And there's a new book that has come out by Penguin Books called Brett. And the reason that he was criticized was not, this is I've only the galley copy, but this is a new book written by a journalist called James Nestor. And uh, the reason that he was criticized was not because the dentists and orthodontists didn't agree with him, but this was because he went against what the dentists and orthodontists were saying. And here it comes back to resistance to change. Yeah. Even when the information is right, if it doesn't tally with other people's belief, they'll castigate it. This is not about ego. 
This is about getting the real information out there. And that's why I say you have nothing to lose by changing your breathing patterns. I know you've probably never, never been told about it before. I was never told about it despite going to dentists, well, dentists as well, but despite going to doctors and healthcare professionals for many years. And I think it's because it's too simple, Steve. Nutrition is overlooked, sleep is overlooked, and breathing is overlooked. And sometimes the most fundamental functions of the human body, we need to get back to basics. Our ancestors knew about this. We don't. It's a lost art, and it's time to get it back again. Uh, look, I love the last hour. Thank you for taking your time out. Uh, people want to get in. First of all, they've got to go and buy your book because, you know, even in an hour, we've talked lots and lots and lots. And we have given you sort of 70 percent of what you need to know. But there's probably another 30 percent in here. I found it a fascinating read. I was skeptical at first, especially when it came through the post. It's a big, big book. I thought, oh, this is a couple of hours of my life. I'm never going to get back. What's breathing got to do with health? I'm a complete convert. I think this is a fantastic book that everybody that wants to reset themselves, their health, wants to uh, take the primal reset course that we do, understanding how you breathe, why you breathe, why we've changed the way we breathe, getting back to breathing through the nose. It's a fantastic read. And you tell them what uh, they can also find, Patrick, at your website, which is by the same name, uh, Oxygen Advantage. What can they find there? So uh, we've put up a lot of the science in terms of if you go to About and Science, you'll see different chapters of what we spoke about the importance of nasal breathing, stimulating the vagus nerve, um, reducing lactic acid and fatigue, asthma, et cetera. So that might be useful. And yeah, I suppose there's master classes and just different information out there. The bolt is on the, the homepage. There's a video of how to measure it. And there's another test there called the maximum breathlessness test. And yeah, don't get too worried about your bolt score, but use it as an indicator of where you're at because it can provide good feedback. And uh, we've done videos on YouTube. I put out a COVID video there about a month ago, how to breathe if people get into respiratory distress and it went viral. So it's had 700,000 views and a lot of people who have had COVID, I've been in touch with them, including one doctor from Edinburgh who is saying that nasal breathing is now spreading amongst doctors who were in the first, the front line in terms of COVID. That's great news because again, we can improve oxygen uptake and delivery by virtue of slowing down the breath through the nose to six breaths per minute, yeah, I think there's good resources there, and we try and put it, put it out all the time. I tell you what, again off topic, and I know I'm trying, I keep trying to end this, but it's so fascinating. Um, COVID could have been a lot less worse, could it not, if we all nasal were breathing? If we'd all learned this years ago and forgot that we should be breathing through here, I bet we would have spread a lot less germs if we were, and I know that this is completely off topic, but yes. we probably would have no, spread a not. lot less it's germs absolutely if we were breathing true. properly. We have a 42% greater water loss breathing out through the mouth. And our ancestors knew this. I've heard so many stories of primitive tribal groups that when a boy was becoming a hunter, they had to get a mouthful of water and they had to run maybe a distance of three or four miles across a hot environment with nasal breathing only. But when they reached their destination, they had to spit out the water. And the reason being is because if you sent out a young hunter out into a hot environment, and if that hunter was a mouth breather, they are likely to dehydrate. Your nose is not just about moistening the air coming in, but your nose is about 
heat and moisture on the breath out. And that's how we can conserve water. If we think of COVID, we think of individuals going into gyms. They'll be all in there, a bunch of mouth breeders, fast breeders, shallow breeders, and there's going to be a vapor of moisture. And this is how COVID is also, well, it's it spread, not just with coughing and, and sneezing, but talking and breathing. So it's like an aerosol going into the atmosphere and you have another individual doing exercise beside that person. They also have their mouth open. They have no defense in terms of nitric oxide from the nose, which is antiviral. And nitric oxide has been shown. Now, I can't say that it will stop COVID, but what I can say is that it has been shown in laboratory experiments to inhibit the replication of SARS coronavirus back in 2005. And if you Google clinical trials, nitric, nitric oxide, COVID, you will see that there are clinical trials underway about the importance of nitric oxide as a gas to help to deal with COVID. Our nose is a source of nitric oxide. Our mouth isn't. Thank you for what has been a fascinating uh, hour. Absolutely. I've learned loads from reading the book and, and from talking to you today. I'm sure the listeners and viewers uh, also will. And we'll uh, definitely can to, to, to promote you uh, with, with, with your work. Just a massive thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. Enjoyed the chat. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FFPODCAST and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.